Our call to worship is Revelation 12, 10 through 11, uh, page 1145 in your pew Bible. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Our New Testament reading this morning is Acts 26, 4 through 18, uh, and page 1031 and 32 of your pew Bible. <clears throat> Paul speaks, the Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise of the 12 tribes uh, are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. One of these journeys, I was going to Damascus, with the, uh, with the authority and the commission of the chief priest. About noon, King, King Agrippa, I was on the road and I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I ask, Lord, who, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you uh, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and you will, and you will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open up their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Oh, your praise team is good. Keep, keep working at it, folks. Uh, I'm blessed by it. I got to tell you, though, from where I was sitting when you sang your first song, 
I could see Kayla's mouth moving, but I heard your voice, and I'm thinking, wow, that girl's got a low voice. <laughs> oh, praise the Lord. It's good to be with you today. I'm so glad to be back here. Um, I am sure there are a lot of people, though, that are rejoicing that next Sabbath, your own pastor, Greg, will be back. Um, it's been really a treat for me to be here with you a few times, and uh, I've enjoyed it just ever so much. It's my custom to seek the Lord before beginning to preach, so if you'll just join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we rejoice today because this is your Sabbath day. It's a special time for us to be together. We can be together every day, yes. But there's something about your Sabbath where all the other stuff gets put away. The secular thoughts, all of the troubles of the world, all of the things that distract us, we can just put away for 24 hours and we can rejoice in being your children. Today, Lord, we're going to complete a thought that we started last Sabbath. I find it fascinating. I find it invigorating. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will take what's in my head and put it into words so that it stirs the heart of each one here in your presence this morning. May it be your words, Lord. May it be your spirit speaking. I'm only here to deliver a message. I'm just a letter carrier, as it were. But may glory and praise be to the Christ. In his holy name we pray. Amen. There are times when the circumstances that we face overwhelm us. I'm going to tell you a little bit of a short story about my family. It's not the thrust, it's merely an introduction into our topic this morning. I became a pastor in 1981, but I had worked as a pastor unofficially for a number of years. I started going to a small church in Michigan. On a good Sabbath, there'd be 18 people there. That's a big day. You would wonder what happened to everybody if only 18 folks showed up here. But it gave me a good opportunity to learn what it is to serve the church. I was a Sabbath school teacher, I was a deacon, I was an elder, and I was a de facto pastor for many years there. But in 1981, I actually went to work for the Michigan Conference of Seventh-day Adventists and was assigned this is very strange, 
back to that church that I had worked for for many years, plus its sister church about eight miles away. My wife and I, by 1981, had been married for nine years. And it seemed like things were coming together for us. In 1976, we had a beautiful daughter born to us. Well, actually, she wasn't all that beautiful in the first year or so. I loved her anyway. But by the time she got to be about five, she was a knockout. She was beautiful. Beautiful brown eyes, beautiful black hair, and as sweet as it was possible to be as my child. You know, you learn from your parents. And everything was terrific. Sabbath, July 20, excuse me, not July, October 20, 1984. I preached in that little church. We went home, got some lunch, and then we were going to go back to Kalamazoo Junior Academy for their fall festival. I was going to do the uh, worship thought. But before we went to the school, we went to some church members' homes. They were members of that little bitty church that I've told you about. But they were going to be leaving to go to Cameroon in West Africa. They were going to be serving in a medical capacity in that country. Yowendi or some name like that. I believe it's the capital city, but I never really learned to pronounce it correctly. We had visited a little bit, but we were getting ready to leave because it was time to drive over to Kalamazoo. And it just started to rain. Our car was parked not in the driveway of the house because it was full. We were parked across the street near the end of the driveway, but the opposite side. A lot of people had been there. And it was a rural sort of area. There was uh, just a two-lane blacktop highway running in front of the house. And it was just over the rise of uh, a bridge that went over Interstate 94. And as we were all heading toward the house, my wife and I are still saying goodbyes. I'm holding our son, who was just a little over a year old. My wife is a little ahead of me. And some woman I'd not seen before, came up to the house crying, sobbing, saying, there was nothing I could do. What had happened is my daughter and two friends who were going to ride with us over to the school 
were going to get in our car. They were running because it had started to rain. But blacktop highways get slick when they first get wet. The oil in the highway makes them very slippery. And my daughter, whose name was Amber, slipped and fell. In her eight-year-old mind, she had enough time to cross the street. She did not foresee the possibility of slipping and falling. But when I got to the street, she was laying on her back with her head just in front of the bumper of a yellow Corvette and her body going under the car. The car had hit her in the forehead. And what I remember was seeing one of those plates on the front of the car that said spoiled. And I remember that that spoiled my love for Corvettes for a couple of decades. She was unconscious, taken to Kalamazoo, Bronson Hospital, was unconscious. They did a um, MRI, saw the damage that had been done, and they discovered that there was a hemorrhage in her brain. And she would, from the damage of that hemorrhage, not be able to walk or speak. But I was a believer. I knew God was going to take care of that situation. And so we lived in the waiting room of the uh, Pediatric Intensive Care Unit, PICU. We were there praying continuously. As a pastor in the Michigan Conference, all of the pastors in my conference were praying for her. The teacher that she had at Kalamazoo Junior Academy had brothers in ministry and other conferences, and they were praying. And I was getting notices from all over the country and even in some other parts of the world that they were praying for my daughter. And I was sure God was going to raise her. But the night of the ninth day, she had seemed to be getting better, seemed to be getting better. And I had interrupted a series that I was doing in my other church, the, the larger one, not large, but larger. And um, I was doing, this was a long time ago, I was doing a revelation seminar there. And I thought, I can get away from the hospital long enough to go do my class, be back, I'll be gone maybe three hours maximum. 
in the middle of the class, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who'd been at the hospital, and he says, Frank, you better come to the hospital right away. I apologized to the group. I don't remember exactly what I said, but they understood what was going on. I got in my car. As I was driving, something like 15 or 18 miles to the hospital, I was pleading with the Lord. Maybe you sometimes have bargained with the Lord. You've kind of reasoned with him, giving him your logic as though you could out-debate the Lord. And I was saying, Lord, she's got to get better. My dad left the church years ago. If something happens to her, will he ever come back? My sister left the church years ago. If something happens to her, will they ever come back? Driving in a Chevy station wagon. No radio on. But I heard a voice as clear and as audible as if it had been right next to me. And it said, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if one is raised from the dead. And I burst into tears because I knew exactly what God had told me. My daughter was dead. I got to the hospital. They had turned on some heating lamps over her bed. I'm sorry to be hesitant in telling you the story. It's just hard to get the words out. I'll, I'll get past this. She had been on a respirator, making it easier for her to breathe. And it continued to do its work. You could see that little chest just go. You could just see it. But when I looked at her eyes, the sparkle was gone. Pupils were fixed and dilated. And I knew that was it. They didn't legally pronounce her dead until the next morning after an electroencephalograph. But you'd have to be a pretty rookie person to not recognize that that body was growing cold, that those eyes were gone. And an awful lot of people, an awful lot of people said, why, Lord? All of those good people praying. My prayers may not have been good enough, but there were people praying who were in elevated positions in the church. We had had an anointing done by people who were experienced in their trust in God. 
I had pledged to God that we would go everywhere proclaiming the glory of his miraculous power. But she died. There was a pastor from a neighboring church, Mike McKenzie, great guy. He came along with several other pastors that morning as soon as they got the word. The pastor of the Kalamazoo Nichols Road Church, Roy Lemon, came and was with me and when it became obvious, with us, excuse me, when it became obvious what was going on, he called some others. Mike McKenzie said, I gotta share with you what I read in my devotion this morning. And I'd like for you to take whatever Bible is close to you and I'd like for you to look at this because it was astounding to me. Astounding to me. I'm going to read this to you exactly as it is in the New International Version with the exception of um, I'm leaving out in the province of Asia. Five words. It made it local to Paul. That's the only part I'm going to leave out, but turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 8. We're only going to leave out those five words from verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But... This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that, we will continue, that he will continue to deliver us as you Help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. It happened so that we would trust in God who has the ability to even raise the dead. Now, what does any of this have to do with what we started talking about last week and what we're going to conclude with this morning? Jesus died in the spring of 31, Passover time. Crucified, 
the most horrible form of execution that the mind of sinful humanity had conceived of to that time. We have perfected the art even more now. But crucifixion wasn't just, oh, they're going to die from blood loss from the hands and feet. No, indeed. Crucifixion was a torturous death. By the way, keep in mind that to the people of that time and in that locality, the hand didn't end at the wrist. That's Western thought. The hand extended down to the elbow. All of that was hand. And we tend to think when Jesus was nailed in the hands, he must have been nailed in the palms. No, the tissues would have torn from the weight of the body. Almost certainly, and we find from, believe it or not, archaeological remains, a nail was too tough to get pulled out, so they hacked off the arm and threw the board away with the arm still there. Below your metacarpals, you have two bones in your wrist, or in your arm, I should say, the ulna and the radius. And almost certainly the nails on Jesus were between those two bones and elbow side from the metacarpals. But Jesus was not hung on that cross so that the weight would fall primarily on the arms. That would have been painful, but not painful enough. So the body was in a crouching position, like this. And the feet nailed together to the cross put him in a place where he would have to keep the weight on those nail-pierced feet in order to be able to continue to breathe. Because the body would sag, you would... Uh, lose your capacity to take a breath. Probably could not hold himself in that pushed up position for very long. Push, endure the pain, catch a breath, and sag. But then again, there was more. Because we find that the Romans, when they executed, took an impaling spike at the point of the person's rectum and impaled them, yes, with a spike. And it gets worse than that. They usually placed crosses, if possible, by some type of insect hill, like ants, so that along with all of the other things that that person had to endure, they were to endure the ants crawling on them and in them. And people had seen their Lord die in the most excruciating pain. We tend to think of it today, well, Jesus, he died for our sins. Yeah, thanks. 
but we don't realize the full extent of what he went through. But those who saw, those who saw Jesus die were forever changed because they knew the power of that man. They knew that he had given sight to a man born blind. That means he didn't have functioning eyes in his head. They had either seen or heard the stories of the raising of the widow of Nain's son, of Jairus's daughter, and most amazing of all, Lazarus, the man who had not only died, but been dead long enough that his body was decomposing. And when Martha said, Lord, there'll be a smell, she wasn't kidding. You drive by an animal that's been killed by the side of the road and been there for a few days, it is overwhelming. It'll make you want to wretch. I once officiated at a funeral in Detroit where a man who had been killed in Texas was improperly embalmed. And let me tell you, during that sermon where that man was laid out open casket in front of the podium, there wasn't anybody in that room who didn't know that that man was dead. And I don't know, I don't believe in suing, but I think I would have had something to say to the funeral home in Texas who did such a poor job because the family must have been embarrassed and everyone's trying to be polite while at the same time you're gagging from the smell. Lazarus had been raised to life when he was full-blown dead. Some had seen Jesus feed thousands of people out of a small, insignificant sack lunch. Some had seen him walk across the water and know there were no stones just below the surface. Peter tried that, found out it was just water. And when these people saw what happened to their Lord and realized through the preaching of the apostles that the reason he came to the world was to save them. He endured all of that pain, all of that suffering, knowing in advance how his life would end. They were convinced that one who would love them that much was worth everything to them. And so for three and a half years, things went really quite well for the followers of the way. Talk of Jesus and his love and his sacrifice was on everyone's lips. The naysayers of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and such, didn't know what to do with all of this. And finally, they decided when they heard 
Stephen, the deacon, testifying of Jesus and his love, they brought him before the council. They said, we cannot have you preaching in the name of this dead guy, Jesus, anymore. Shut up! It's not the words they would have used, but it's what people nowadays would say. Stephen goes on and gives his defense. We touched on it a little bit last week, and it got to the point where he was glorifying the risen Christ. And he was saying, more than risen from the dead, I see him ascended to heaven and seated at the right hand, the place of favor, beside God the Father. And they said, we can't stand it anymore. And they covered their ears and stomped their feet and yelled at the top of their voices, away with him. Silence this man. They took him outside of town and stoned him to death. Never adjourned that meeting, by the way. If it were Congress, it would be written in the congressional record. The members proceeded to take the defendant outside the city and stoned him to death. But we read last week that the youngest member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee who had studied under Gamaliel, a Pharisee who was a hot shot, a rising star, a rock star among the Pharisees. As the youngest member, he's watching the garments of those who are participating. He's the rookie, the freshman member of the Sanhedrin. And as such, his responsibility is to hold the coats. But he cast his vote in favor of the execution. And when it was over, he saw what amazing rejoicing seemed to be going on among the members of the Sanhedrin. There's a German word for rejoicing when something bad happens to your enemy. Uh, my German is nicht so gut, but the word is Schoidenfreude. It, it means... Um, rejoicing at bad things. There was some serious schadenfreude going on that day. And Paul, who was smart, when I say smart, not just intellectually, although he definitely was, a brilliant student of the laws of Judaism, but he was also politically smart. And he said, wow, if you gain points in this group by persecuting those followers of the way, let me at it. And Paul went from synagogue to synagogue, from town to town, from region to region, persecuting followers of the way. By the way, they weren't called Christians until later in Ephesus they were first called Christians. It was a derisive term. Oh, you people talk about Christ all the time. Christ this, Christ that, Christ the other thing. You're just little Christians. 
the name stuck because what better name could there be for the followers of Jesus Christ than Christians or Christians? So as Paul is doing this, we're wondering how much persecution is going on. Look at the book of Acts, chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. This is now some years later, because this persecution went on for a long time. But in chapter 9, verse 1, Saul, meanwhile Saul, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Can you imagine now the people who had been followers of Jesus, followers of the way, the truth, and the life, they had been following him for three to five years against all ideas of what was a profitable idea. Among the Jews, followers of the way were considered uh, wayward, to use an old Adventist term. They were backsliders. They had left the truth of Judaism and had given praise to this man who called himself God. Take your Adventist theology for just a minute. And imagine what you might call a person who calls himself God. You've heard it in evangelistic meetings. It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? We don't stone him for any actions. We stone him because he, a mere man, calls himself God. We come down rather difficult on some human being who makes those claims. I'm not saying that that claim fits any other person. It is only because the life and personal testimony of Jesus of Nazareth proved that he was who he was. Beyond any doubt, reasonable or otherwise, you don't give eyes to someone born without them. You don't make legs and arms grow back from atrophy. You don't raise someone who's been dead and decomposing. Jesus had proved that he had those things. And when he said to the paralytic, friend, your sins are forgiven. And all the naysayers back in the background were saying, this man blasphemes. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus says, okay, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your mat and walk. So he says, I'll show you that I have the right to do this. I will do for this man what no human being could possibly do. Jesus had proved who he was. And those who had watched him die 
had also heard the report that he had risen from the grave. Now, let me tell you, it's one thing to resurrect someone. That's pretty amazing. I've never seen it. I want to see it someday when the Lord himself descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet God and trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ rise first. I want to see that. But I've never seen it thus far. But let me tell you, as amazing as that is, it is more amazing for the person who is dead to raise himself. That just doesn't happen. It happened because Jesus had trusted in God all of his life and up to the moment of his death trusted in God. His divinity was kind of put on a shelf and closed during his earthly life. But on that Sunday morning, God spoke to that closed divinity that belonged to the one we call Jesus. And he said, you did it, son. You did it. You proved that by loving me with all your heart and soul and mind, that sin would no longer have its way in this world forever. And with the approval of God the Father, Jesus, the Holy One, raised himself. And so the believers, astounded, astounded, more proof about Jesus. And the devil said, this isn't working the way I planned. Time for plan B. And Saul was the instigator, the initiator of plan B. Persecution. These were not people who were simply rounded up and placed in ghettos. Those who persecute, who round people up and put them in ghettos, are never satisfied with ghettos. They want more. Take the history of the 20th century. The 1930s and 40s. And you'll find that putting people into ghettos does not satisfy the bloodlust. And Paul talks about his murderous threats. A murderous threat has no power if it's never carried out. It was carried out. There were people who died because of Saul of Tarsus. Can you imagine, as these people are being arrested by a religious leader, supposedly, and brought in for interrogation, they must have thought, God will take care of us. 
been faithful to him. I've been taking what he said seriously. I am thoroughly and completely devoted to Jesus as the Messiah. And so, as they were imprisoned, as their possessions were taken away, they were assured that this was only a test. You're old enough to remember the what, uh, civil defense network on the radio or on television. This is only a test. The stations in your community in voluntary compliance with, you know, and all this old, this is only a test. That's what they must have thought, just a test. They're holding on, waiting for God to intervene. And he doesn't. It could be a very, very sad story if that's where it ended, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't even come close to ending there. Because these people, as they were facing the loss of their property, the loss of their families, the loss of any hope of employment, even the loss of their lives, these people said, for Jesus, it's worth it. Look what he did for me. And if Jesus loves me so much, he would go through that. I will trust him anyway. Amen. They probably read the scroll of Job and decided that though he slay me, yet will I serve him. They probably thought, I know my Redeemer lives. And that at the end, I will see him stand on the earth. Even though my body is dead and destroyed, I will see him. I know he has the power of resurrection and life. I'm going to trust him. One after one, family after family, hundreds, no doubt died facing certain death for the sake of Jesus. Now, with that fact in your mind, think of Saul of Tarsus. This arrogant young man. Have you ever found that people when they're very young and become very successful they take on an arrogance. They somehow think that they're better than other people. You've seen it with pop stars and singers and rich kids and politicians. You just see it over and over and over. And here's Saul of Tarsus thinking, I may be the youngest, but I'm the best known in this Sanhedrin. And I'm going to show these followers of the way that I mean business. And he is putting tough situations at the feet of these people and they're saying, no, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is my Lord. And he says, you don't understand. You continue to say that, you're gonna die. And they say, 
Well, that may be. But though he slay me, yet will I serve him. There were probably some who remembered the story from the book of Daniel about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah that said to the king, we don't need to be queasy about our answer, king. The God we serve is able to deliver us, but even if he does not, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods, O king. And the result of this continual and habitual faith in the face of sin, or excuse me, in the face of death, started to eat away at Saul. Now there's some things that we don't know much of with regard to Saul, but we know that as a member of the Sanhedrin, he had to be married. It was required that you be married to be a part of the Sanhedrin. And there's one thing that we know about the Jews is that they didn't make exceptions to the law. They were sticklers for the law. So Saul of Tarsus was married as this rising star in the Sanhedrin. He may very well have been married to the daughter of some other prominent member of Judaism or perhaps the daughter of a fellow Sanhedrin member. Marriage had to come before the membership. So I can imagine Paul, after coming back from some of these trips, his wife is just really his cheering section. Way to go, Saul. Boy, you're taking care of those infidels. You're taking care of those blasphemers. You're doing it. And so when he comes home and one day begins to express reservations, these people really believe this Jesus. They're facing death, and they still believe him. She's saying, oh, come on, Saul. Don't start turning into some lily-livered, radical liberal. But Saul was having more and more trouble day after day after day. So when we turn back to Acts chapter 26, this is the third time that Paul has told the story in the book of Acts, but I chose this speech before Agrippa because he shares something here that he didn't share in the other two tellings of the story. Let's start uh, at verse 12. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus. He's now going to a foreign country for his persecution, with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, I was on the road and I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, by the way, just here and in Daniel you'll find that, where the voice was saying to me in Aramaic, the actual text 
in the original, switches to that language at that point. So the voice was probably speaking that way, but in telling the story, the in Aramaic means the language that it's just now switching to is Aramaic, be back to Greek later, okay? So this voice that I had heard speaking to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, by the way, wherever you find the person's name repeated twice, God is intent on getting their attention. Moses, Moses, Saul, Saul, you, you'll find this repeatedly. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? But here's the part right after that. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What is God saying to him? What is Jesus saying to him? He's saying, don't fool yourself. You don't believe this anymore, do you? It's hard for you to continue with your bravado and your persecution and your death trials. Your heart's not in it anymore, is it, Saul? And we know what happened. Saul gave his heart to Jesus. But it is vital to our understanding to know that this wasn't God speaking to him out of the clear blue sky with no advanced work being done. If you're doing evangelism and you're preparing to make an altar call, you do advance work. You help people to make steps one at a time leading up to where they're ready, ready to say, all to Jesus I surrender. You don't just take somebody and say, hey, I want you to become a Christian. You're ready, right? No. And God didn't coerce Saul. Saul was overcome by the preponderance of evidence from those who were suffering persecution. Sometimes we say, Lord, why? Why? I told you the story of my daughter. I have a dear friend. We were Academy roommates. He was a successful and much loved orthopedic surgeon. Testified to his staff and to his patients all the time about the love of Christ. Died of cancer. Why? Why? Because sometimes the way you face death, sometimes the way you face trials, sometimes the way you face discouragement and persecution is the strongest testimony you can ever give for Jesus. Amen. If you go back to one of our texts from this morning, Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, 
By the way, when there's a loud voice in heaven speaking, it's not Gabriel, usually. The one who speaks with a loud voice from heaven is the one who speaks from the throne. This is the Almighty. I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Okay, all of these things are coming to Christ. What brings this about? For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Oh, the devil is defeated. Read on. They overcame him. How was the devil overcome? They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. We know what that is. That is through the sacrifice of Jesus. But we're talking about believers here that were saved by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. We don't always know when we're giving testimony. We may not think that we are giving testimony before unbelievers. But when we are, it has the power to overcome the power of the accuser of the brothers and sisters. How we respond to trials, how we respond to disappointment, how we maintain our faith in the face of a broken heart, personal tragedy, what we say about our faith in Jesus at those times is perhaps the strongest testimony that we can give. It's easy to say, I love the Lord, when everything's going well. Oh, God has blessed me. Oh, let me tell you, my job is great. My kids are saved. My spouse loves me. I have this wonderful home. I have this great car. I have this amazing job. My retirement is blessed. Oh, praise God. You want to know who the author of the Gospel of Prosperity is? Read Job. Well, of course he serves you. You put a hedge around him. You protect everything he's got. Of course he loves you. What is the devil saying? Well, you're bribing the witness. <laughs> what person would not serve you, God, if you made them the richest person in that part of the world, if you gave them the perfect family, if you gave them riches beyond count. Who wouldn't serve you, God, but take away all that he has? The strongest testimony any one of us can give is to say, it is my Lord, my Savior, and though he slay me, though I lose everything that I've got, yet will I serve him. 
And because there were people who were persecuted by Saul of Tarsus, who lost their homes, who lost their families, who lost everything they had, including their lives, and still trusted in God, Saul began to break down. And God one day says, it's really hard to kick against the goads of your conscience, isn't it, Saul? And Saul said, yeah, yeah it is. I'm going to change. Did it cost Saul anything? Yeah. He lost his wife. She wasn't going to stay married to a Christian, a follower of the way. He had been a rising star in the Sanhedrin. Now he's part of this sect. He lost his wife. He lost his job. He nearly permanently lost his eyesight, had trouble with it all the rest of his life. He was later stoned and beaten by rods and spent a day and night in the sea. And you've heard all of the things that happened to him. And yet, what did he say toward the end of his life? I'm now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand, but henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of victory, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that that I've committed unto him against that day. Paul was thankful for the privilege of suffering because he knew the effect that watching others suffered had had on him. And it also gave him a sense of paying for his crimes against fellow believers. No penance, but I'm sure that it helped to salve his conscience just a wee bit. This man who was proud of his obstinance, this man who was proud of his fantastic effort to snuff out Christianity, became an apostle of Jesus Christ. And does God have a sense of humor or what? This guy who thought as a Jew that he was better than everybody else and certainly much better than those Goyim, those... Gentiles, the ethnos, God says, they're going to be your prime mission field. You're going to work for these people you thought were not worthy of taking up space on the planet. And you know what? You're going to love it. Because of the testimony of those believers who wondered why Saul of Tarsus became Paul, the apostle. Wrote close to half of the New Testament. Took the gospel all over Europe. And it's because somebody believed in the Lord. 
and overcame the devil by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The next time you get discouraged, the next time you wonder, God, why are you doing this to me? Allow your mind to change gears for a moment and say, God, thank you for loving me and trusting me enough to allow me to have a part in the overthrow of the devil by the word of my testimony. Because Saul was certain that his election, calling, and salvation were sure. You can be sure as well. Thank you, Pastor. At this time, we'll take the offering. And now, Lord, we say, as did Paul, we know in whom we have believed that we don't follow cunningly devised fables, but we follow the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The resurrection life giver, the creator, the savior of our souls. Lord, make us strong enough in our faith that when given the opportunity to witness for you in whatever way it may be, whether it's in good times or in difficult times, whether it is by living for you or dying for you, may we give you praise so that we may be overcomers by the blood of the Lamb, but others may be overcomers because of the word and the actions of our testimony. Lord, above all, we want heaven to be filled with your children, people that we know and that we love. So help us to give a faithful testimony. Who knows but what we might have a small part in the conversion of one who will be like Paul, the apostle, converting thousands and making your children return home through their testimony. Lord, make us faithful. And today, may we rejoice in the salvation that you have given us. May we rejoice in the love and affection of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And may we do all within our power to continuously give you praise for you alone are God and we love you through Jesus the Christ we pray amen